0: Hello, and welcome to AgTech So What? Brought to you by the AgTech Group. I'm Sarah Nolette. Making investments in agriculture is hard, and I'd argue that however challenging it is for people like us to theorize about the future of agtech, tech, it's actually even harder for farmers to make investments in technology or anything else, especially as climate change makes the future of their businesses less and less predictable. We've been thinking about how farmers think about investing in their businesses for a long time, So when we stumbled upon Hallie a few weeks ago, we were pretty pumped.
1: I'm one of those people that I have these massive spreadsheets and I'm really very interested in numbers. So we sat down and we did these strategic plans and we've been adjusting as we've gone, Um, especially
0: now the inputs are up. Hallie Schaffner is a sixth generation row crop farmer in the Mississippi Delta region of Arkansas in the US where she grows soybeans, corn, rice, and wheat with a twist. See, Hallie's farm, SFR Seed, is not your average commodity operation.
1: So my mom actually has her master's degree from UC Davis in plant physiology, and she met and married my dad, and they decided they would open a research farm, which is back in the day, you would contract with chemical companies, BASF being a major chemical company that we think of. Would They would basically do these EPA regulated trials on pesticides and herbicides that had just come onto the market. Extremely regulated, very regimented, very scientific approach. And that is what I, actually, I had to work on the farm every summer. I was not given an option, which was fine. I really enjoyed it. So when I was 10, they actually stuck me on a mower and they were like, go mow everything, which was like five acres. So I'd mow everything and in three days, and then I'd have to turn around and load it again. But after I, after I got older, I would help my mom load up these chemicals, and she would put on this this. It would look like a hazmat suit, but it wasn't exactly a hazmat suit. And this backpack full of chemicals and the spray boom, and she and I would walk thousands and thousands of little bitty trials of soybeans and rice, doing different tests of residues. So we'd do an application of a herbicide or pesticide at say emergence when the soybeans had just come up and then again right before the reproductive stage again thousands and thousands and thousands of times so that is what the farm did the pesticides and herbicides of course are still very much a thing but really it's genetics and traits that have taken over the market you think of roundup ready you think of extend flex when we're talking about soybeans and we moved into doing production of pre-commercial varieties. So contracting with companies on varieties that were somewhere in between having been bred in a greenhouse and actually going to be sold to a farmer um, who would then grow it and go to a granary with it. So we do a lot of yield trials, a lot of disease ratings. We'll just go out in the field and we'll say, we'll compare varieties and say, this one is doing really well, this one is not.
0: What are you seeing change in that landscape? Like one of my observations is that the, given the increasing extremeness and frequency of extreme weather events, the risk management dynamics are changing a little bit. And so there might be new trade-offs that we're willing to make. Like I wanna get this crop off faster, even if that has a little bit of a yield impact, but it gives me a little bit uh, of more certainty on the risk side. Are are those the kind of trade-offs you're seeing? Any examples?
1: That's really what's going on right now in pretty much in, in, genetics, it's all about first the trait that you have. So whatever herbicide it's resistant to, whether it's 2,4-D or Roundup, but then it's also the maturity. So how quickly can you get it in the ground? Which means how quickly you can get it out. Farmers can plant earlier and earlier now with these younger and younger maturity. The other thing is things like drought resistance, and we have seen, um, quite we've tested a lot on our farm drought is not our problem <laughs> our problem is we're way too wet but that i think is going to be a game changer and that's really where the market is going is the these varieties that are really hardy and can withstand a lot of stress and still yield fairly well
0: and have you seen willingness to make that trade-off? We've heard sort of, oh, well, it could have maybe a little bit lower yield, but it's worth it for these other traits? Or is it still it has to be both because we're not going to compromise on the yield side?
1: No, I think that farmers are becoming very savvy when it comes to balancing their options in terms of genetics and picking a wide range of things. Our neighbors are really good at this. And they'll not only do it by the hardiness or the different uh, genetic attributes of a variety, but also different maturities so that they can stagger their soybean harvest so that they're not rushing to get it all out at the same time, which of course, if you get behind, it could affect quality. Or they're picking things that would do better on different soil types, because that is also something that's going on in terms of genetics. How well does this perform on heavy clay versus a sort of a sandy silt loam?
0: As you you mentioned kind of strategic decisions that your neighbors are making, you're also making strategic decisions. How do you think about the kinds of investments you do and don't make on the farm?
1: So when I took over, having watched my parents, of course, for years, I knew the strategy behind farming in terms of finances, right? The point is you make money, you build your equity, your cushion in your good years to offset your bad years. Inevitably can't control mother nature, you're going to have bad years. However, what we're seeing now is we have a much greater number of bad years than we have previously. I'm not saying there are more bad years than good years, but the proportion is much larger. And that makes that calculation that mitigation of risk harder. So when i sat down with my team and i we were talking about this and we said look we have to make two decisions a we have to address our own environmental impact and b we have to make more money in the good years to offset what's happening and we've decided we have to become more profitable by using the very techniques that will make us more environmentally friendly, which is the conservation techniques. And and in so doing, increase our yields and reduce our inputs. And there are quite a few things that we're doing. I'm one of those people that I have these massive spreadsheets and I'm really very interested in numbers. So we sat down and we did these strategic plans and we've been adjusting as we've gone, um, especially now the inputs are up. But the biggest thing that we've done is uh, we have a three-year plan for chicken litter application we would like to reduce the amount of synthetic fertilizer we use, especially now that it's extremely expensive. And so we said, all right, we're going to do full chicken litter application. Two years, pre-plant, just let's put it on. So originally I thought it was going to be a lot less of an investment than it has been because chicken litter went up, but we are two years into our three year application of litter, we've made $115,000 investment. And so far with a yield bump in just one year, a yield bump and our reduction of synthetic fertilizer use, we've saved 91,000. Nice. So the ROI will, will, will be next year. We've also paired that with grid sampling. So that is. Essentially, instead of doing random spots in an 80-acre field, you do a much more strategic approach in the form of a grid. And we've been able to assess then how the chicken litter is doing in the field. And then we're able to say, okay, now when we're ready to apply fertilizer, and we will have to eventually do so, we can actually plug it into a computer system and apply it where we need it, as opposed to just this blanket application which is wasteful and it does have a harmful environmental impact to use too much synthetic fertilizer so the other thing that i'm really excited about and i hope we do a lot more of it we've decided to try to reduce our tillage so i think that's a big hot button issue right now people are talking about it this no-till and no-till works really well in many situations It's harder i think in our area there aren't as many farmers who are interested in doing it just because of how hard it is and the fact that you will see the yield reduction you just inevitably around here if you plant you don't till especially if you don't till and then plant a cover crop you will see a yield drop initially however around here you are working your ground four to five times before you're planting. You're tilling a couple times, you're land planting, you're bedding, and then of course you're doing whatever your burn down is, right? And every pass costs you a lot of money. Every time you put a piece of equipment across an acre, that's money that you've spent on diesel, labor, wear and tear on your machinery. If you can save save some of those passes, you can save money. So what we've done is we bought a permanent better. It was about a $25,000 investment. And we said, we're going to reduce our tillage by 39% in uh, three years. Uh, We haven't quite gotten there yet. We're working on it, but I figured that we've saved about $72,000. And that is, that's labor, fuel, equipment wear and tear. That's that's insane. That number of passes in a field, it's insane how quickly all that adds up, especially with diesel. Beam. So it's not no-till, it's minimum till, and we hope to use it more and more.
0: Did you calculate that ROI versus any impacts on yield for the tillage example? Do you know that 75,000 saved on equipment passes and diesel and things? Do you? How about on the yield side, did it stack up?
1: So it's hard to do on the yield side because what we did was we said, okay, we want to make sure that we're not tilling the sandier ground that we have, because that is where you're going to lose a lot of a lot of ground, a lot of topsoil. So we said, okay, well, we won't till that as much, so we won't lose as much of that topsoil. But that's also where we've been focusing our grid sampling and our strategic chicken litter application. So we've got a yield bump there. Anyway, so I can't say whether or not um, I don't maybe, maybe it's a yield bump. I really doubt it, but I hope to know more. It's we're doing all these things at the same time.
0: And and how did you decide? You mentioned it to your strategic plan. Like, how did you decide which projects you're gonna take on? Like, are there goals you're trying to reach? Was there a planning process? Like, where did these ideas come from?
1: So, my chief operating officer, who's amazing, Cy Williams, I basically asked him, I was like, if we had all of the money in the world. What would you do? And we just went through the through all the things that we'd like to do, which are minimum till cover crops, run cattle. We'd love to run cattle. And then we were like, okay, we can't do A, B and C. We can do D and E <laughs> and maybe someday we'll do F. And it really came down to how much money we had and the infrastructure that would be required. So the, the minimal till was the first thing we did and the chicken litter was the next thing we did.
0: Did you take that list of ideas from the team and then do some like ROI calculations and say, okay, these ones stack up and that's how you picked? Yeah,
1: yeah. We had the conversation. So I said, all right, here's how much a permanent better would cost. Here's what we're talking in terms of chicken litter versus fertilizer. And then I would go into my massive spreadsheets and I'd look at our revenue and I'd look at our cost per acre. and, And I like to compare our cost per acre against the counties. The extension service always puts out a cost per acre. So I compare ours. Just because what we do is a little different when our labor expenses are higher. I spend a lot of time in front of the computer. (laughs) We just got a new software called LandDB. It's a Syngenta product that we're going to try to use to better evaluate our herbicide use. And see if we're, how much we're actually spending per acre based on the herbicide that we're using. We're able to actually input all of our herbicides individually and how much they cost per gallon and then put in the rate and it will tell us exactly how much money we spent using, say, this Roundup or this 240. So I'm excited about that.
0: Yeah, interesting. And do your customers, are, are they a driver as well here? Are you getting, are there kind of external factors? You mentioned climate, but do you think this will deliver more value for your? customers and, and does that weigh into the calculation?
1: It absolutely will, because obviously the more money we can save, the less our costs will have to go up and the less you know we'll have to charge our customers for the services we provide and then yield. The point of what we do is to get a good yield. And that's hard when you're doing seed production because seed production, in order to get a good germination, as opposed to say, I'm taking my soybeans to a granary and well, who cares whether or not germs the next year, it just needs to be good quality, right? we have to make sure that whatever we grow has a good enough germination if someone puts it in the ground the next year it comes up and you have to plant that a little later which means you're going to have a slightly lower yield so anything we can do to bump our yield up is going to be helpful
0: so one of the projects you mentioned was uh row rice tell me about where did that originate from how did you come up with the idea and uh, yeah what is it
1: no i don't actually remember how we came up with the idea I'm sure it was Sai so said let's try row rice I know there wasn't a ton of row rice happening in our area so the the University of Arkansas has been doing research on irrigation and so there's been some research done on uh, whether or not you can significantly save water in row rice versus flood so when you plant on a row, you're using a better, you create your furrows and your veg, and you plant on top of a row. And that's how we do soybeans, um, and corn. For rice, you have a drill and you drill into flat ground. Uh, you pull your levees and then you flood it and that's how you water it. And so you're, especially if, if you're not zero grade, like we aren't, if you have some slopes to your field, then it's really not the most efficient way. To water. You're using a lot of water and, of course, a lot of fuel if you're pumping with with a diesel. So, the idea is if you have row rice, you're better able to control exactly how much water your rice is getting. The question is are you saving enough money to actually offset any possible yield loss? We have not experienced any yield loss and we have experienced a more efficient use of water. So, we're excited about that. We did. 30 acres two years ago, and I think another 30 acres last year, and so we're going to do 65 acres this year. So we'll see how that goes.
0: How big is your team?
1: So there are nine of us year-round.
0: And do you ever have the experience of going off to talk on zoom calls and like getting ideas through the advocacy work and then coming back with, we should try this and we should try this and, and like, how do you maintain the rigor of, all right, we got to put it through the ROI calculations, we got to stack it up against priorities. Does that resonate at all?
1: Yeah, I think man, with Cy, cause Cy and I work so closely together because obviously he maintains the operation. So usually it's he sends me something and he's like, hey, we should look into this, or I'll send him something and I'll say, Hey, we should look into this. And then I've done the calculations for this, and then he'll say, I know what this would cost. Can you do the calculations for this? So it's very teamwork oriented in terms of that. Yeah. Which yeah, is important. I mean that in terms of running a business, I guess this is true for every business, but especially with a farm, you're only as good as your team, right? So I'm extremely blessed to have an amazing team who all are completely on the same page about the work that we do and the quality of work that we provide to our clients and saving money for the future.
0: Yeah. Hallie, in your time investing in the farm and thinking about some of these projects, have there been any like false starts or failures or pivots, projects that didn't work out? I've had like moments of panic, <laughs> for sure,
1: <laughs> which I'll be like, one of the things that we're working on now is um, we're converting our wells from diesel to electric, where it is so much more efficient use of, of pumping time. So pumping power and also money that you don't have to spend on diesel have an electric well over a diesel well. And this is something that Cy and I decided we, we needed to do. We needed to convert all 12 of our wells from diesel to electric. So we're halfway there. And then all of a sudden COVID hits and the price of the electric equipment that we need to do that to do it skyrockets. And so we get a call from the electric company and they're like, if you wanna do this, we need to order your stuff now. And I was like, we're not ready. Like I have this planned out. I know how much money we need at each stage. I'm not ready. The money's not there. And we were like, okay, we just have to pull the trigger. And then I get, of course I get the bill for it. And I'm just like, oh my God, this better pay off this better. We better save a lot of money on diesel. We, but I, my calculations had better be spot on. Or I'm going to have egg on my face in terms of paying this bill. Um, I think that's one of the hardest things in agriculture is spending the money when you don't know exactly what's going to happen, which is true. You go out and you get your crop loan and you don't know whether you're going to make a good crop or not. You hope you do. You hope that you have done your work. You hope you've mitigated your risk. You hope that that you have done everything you can on your side and then that mother nature will work with you. And you have to have a lot of faith.
0: It strikes me you also have to like maintain that faith in the face of others' lack of conviction, whether it's your team or your neighbors or family or whatever it is. I don't know. Does that resonate at all where you have to like, no, this is the right thing and we're going to do it even though others maybe don't agree?
1: I have, and this is for better or for worse. If I run the numbers and it works, then I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) Which is probably why I end up panicking. Like I'll wake up and I'll be like, well, I better be right on this. <laughs> or that's a lot of money down the drain. And then of course things come up. So you're like, you've spent, so you spent $50,000 on a sustainability project. And then crap, you got a combine broke down and you've got to spend $70,000 to fix it and you can't not fix it. So then you're like, how am I going to pay for it now? This is it. This is what farming's like.
0: Totally, and I guess the interesting thing there is the rigor kind of enables you to live those values, but also you like when things go wrong, they might have gone wrong anyways. That's not necessarily related to the sustainability project. It's not the sustainability project's fault. It's just that's what happened. So I imagine it's challenging to separate out the kind of cause and effect. And no, this experiment failed not because of the experiment or the quality of the data or the ROI. It's just like stuff happened and it didn't work.
1: It's such a long game too. I think it's really easy for farmers was easy for me to be like, okay, get the crop in, get it out, get the crop in, get it out and not, what does our crop look like three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? And is the $50,000 I'm spending in this moment, what's that going to look like? What's that payoff look like three, five, 10 years from now? A lot of faith comes in there too. And -hmm. then you have climate change and then you have a combine that breaks down and then you have the war in Ukraine and is all these factors, which is why I work so hard on these sustainability projects and why I advocate for climate action is because I can control a ton of stuff, but if we aren't doing something on a large scale to address climate change, then I've got extreme weather events rolling in onto my farm and it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how many wells I have that have been converted to electric. It doesn't matter how many cover crops. If These extreme weather events keep rolling in for year after year. How much equity do I need?
0: Yeah, not easy stuff to work out. And yeah, spreadsheets only hold so many of the answers there, unfortunately. There's a bunch of like hot topics in ag right now. And I'd love to get your take on a few of them. One that's maybe related most closely to what you're doing, Hallie, is like carbon markets and nature-based solutions, this idea of selling credits or getting premiums and insetting it into a supply chain. Is that something you're paying attention to at all?
1: I am peripherally. So the only company that I've ever interacted with in terms of carbon markets are uh, Farmers Business Network and Indigo Ag. And we don't qualify for Indigo's program because we grow rice. And rice is not an environmentally friendly crop. We're trying to make it better, obviously, but we just, we don't qualify. And for Farmers Business Network, and this is not them specifically, this is the program in general, it's, it ties up your land, in some cases, forever. And in terms of the kinds of practices you have to use, and we rent a a large portion of land that should we, you know, stop doing business or whatever, and it goes to somebody else, we can't guarantee that it, would continue in those practices. So that made us kind of gun shy. And then I had this funny interaction with my cousin. He said, and I don't remember what company it was, but he was like, yeah, I don't know about this carbon market thing. Cause this guy showed up to talk about it and he was wearing a three-piece suit. And it's kind of like that, what are you trying to sell me? Like, you don't know me. You don't know what I go through. What are you trying to sell me? Um, and then I have heard the argument that why should we do all the work for other companies to pollute to use the carbon market to use those credits to pollute as much as they like i don't necessarily agree with that stance but i have heard it often enough to mention it
0: (laughs) yeah those are four of the common pushbacks that we hear and actually are you're speaking the same language in terms of what's frustrating to us about how these markets have been designed like why would we treat it like Um, This permanent asset when it's cyclical and more of a service that farmers are providing. And to your last point, the additionality one is interesting too. like just because you're farming rice, you're already doing these other practices, how do we think about that as a system, and then the last one. If these markets are just enabling more bad, then that obviously doesn't make sense. But if they're creating incentives for overall more good, then obviously that's the way we want to move. But yeah, those are pretty common. When you think of your operation and some of the projects on that list, what's a big or the biggest, if you can share pain point where you think that there's a tech solution that might be the unlock code? Gosh, so much of
1: the, so much of our barrier is money funding tech wise can't really think of anything that, that technology-wise would really help. Precision farming is a key part of what we want to do. And to be honest, our equipment is older and not equipped. And we would like to make that investment, but it's not as high on the priority list because we can hire custom applicators who do have that equipment. But precision agriculture is key. I mean, the grid sampling, being able to apply fertilizer or spray with precision so that you aren't wasting or overlapping or anything like that. I think that's really important.
0: I think the, it's always a tough question to be like, wave a magic wand and invent some new technology. If I knew what that was, I'd probably just go do that. And so I appreciate it. It's a tough question. What's your take on the way that ag tech is being marketed right now to, to farmers like you? So I'm
1: involved in an organization called Ag Launch in Tennessee. And I know the the guy who runs it. And I went to school actually with one of their team members and it's hard, (laughs) I get it. It's really hard to market to farmers. There's a lot of trust building that has to happen first. And I think that in terms of the ag is is working on a a network of potential angel investors in some of these um, startup companies. And so I've been looking at, well, If you were to invest in a company, an ag tech company specifically, what would you look for? And uh, so we've been looking at these sample business plans and I would invest in a company if they have someone related to agriculture in their C-suite or on their founding team. And when I say Ag, grew up on a farm, has a a direct or intimate connection with a farmer, and if during their development stages, they have spoken with farmers on the ground, they have actually done boots on the ground work. If those things were not done, I would not even, I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole, honestly.
0: Do you feel like there's a risk that the second- um, criteria I absolutely agree with, and I think that's pretty well established. and you know your customers talk to them, understand what they're doing. On the first one, do you think that having that boots on the ground experience could be a limitation in like we're gonna do things more the way we always have done versus a totally fresh perspective could challenge things to be different than they have been in the past? I mean, it
1: could be a limitation, but I think if the company recognized that limitation, they should probably make a change. <laughs> yeah I, I, I guess it's the the who moved my cheese sort of situation, right? Like you want somebody within your company who knows how things were done, have been done, are being done, but understand that the cheese keeps moving and can appropriately navigate to the cheese.
0: I might summarize it as you've got to understand why the existing system works the way it does before you can think about changing it, which is definitely something we believe. One of the ways that startups tend to market their products is some kind of economic argument of it will be this many dollars per acre uptick um, or you'll save this much. Any thoughts Mm -hmm. on how those kind of value propositions are resonating and how that quantification is being done?
1: You're speaking my language now. Yeah, every farmer uptick in yield Yes. A decrease in inputs. Yes. Both of those things together. Absolutely. Yes. You've gotten everybody's attention. Now, as to whether or not you can actually do that, (laughs) that's the marketing approach to the ExtendFlex brand. The marketing that was done for the ExtendFlex brand was fantastic. They just blew it out of the water in terms of the ads that you could find online or in farm journals or magazines and it was always two bushels plus three bushels plus yield they just knocked it out of the part of course they had a lot of brand recognition that helped
0: yeah my sense is that the kind of best practice is still around a, like someone who doesn't show up in the three piece suit that like speaks the same language you're speaking, which makes sense. And then B is more about the upside, not the reduction in downside. I think of a spending app. You'd much rather be told like how to get a bit more income than like how to curb your spending. People just don't really want to do that as much. So it's more of a strong value proposition on the upside, but either way it has to be quantitative. What do you think that your farm will look like uh, in the next, I don't know, 20 years or in 20 years, what might be different than it is today?
1: Ag changes so much all the time. So five years ago, when I started working for the company, we actually had two companies. It was our research farm and we had seed company. We sold Stein Seed Company products and we hired, we contracted with the growers to grow these commercial varieties. We took them into a seed conditioning plant. We cleaned them, packaged them and then shipped them off to customers who then grew them to go to a granary, right? Like we, we did all that. And then we also had a retail business too. So we sold the seed as well. And that was a big money maker until all of a sudden it wasn't. And that had to do with just the change in the way that, that seed is sold in the market now. But just based on changes in that business market, we had to pivot really quick. And we were thankfully able to do that because as that change happened, all these genetics came in on the market. A lot of genetics were stewarded by, you know, could not be exported. And they were all of a sudden approved by by the EU and the Philippines, and they could then be exported. So it was like, God shuts the door, he opens the window. So now we are exclusively a seed production farm. However, this year, we have the opportunity to grow another portion of our business, which is a niche rice production farm. It is for companies that specialize in rice varieties that are very very difficult to grow but they are delicious and they are consumed mostly wholesale by restaurants on the east and west coast but they do some retail business too and we do essentially the purification program we make sure that any seed stock that's shipped to farmers who then grow it to mill it is pure and that business doubled overnight (laughs) so I would like to grow the company. I would like to farm at least double what we're farming. Maybe not in the next five years, but maybe the next 10 and encompass uh, more of that rice work because that is super interesting. And also work on the sustainability part of that rice work because rice is so hard. Rice is not an environmentally friendly crop. So finding good ways to grow these niche varieties in a healthy way, like I would be really excited about that.
0: Yeah, that's what my head went to, Holly, was like na- naively you know, from the outside here, two potential opportunities that strike me. One is like thinking about that downstream supply chain and given likely increases in pressure on the environmental credentials of different crops and rice probably coming under scrutiny, like scrutiny, how can you be leading that conversation and thinking about different production methods? And then the other one is you mentioned the chicken litter example and that the price went up and that really changes your economics. Are there different kinds of vertical integration or joint ventures or like other investment or alignment of incentive models that kind of reduce that risk or create creative solutions. I mean,
1: we're looking into other things like possible organic production, or we have a mill in storage and it just
0: does that off,
1: but you never know. Um, and the other thing about rice, of course, is with the war in Ukraine, their wheat production is going to be down by what, a third rice flour, maybe a big deal coming up.
0: Maybe last kind of area, Hallie, before we wrap here, you're obviously the CEO of your organization. Do you think about farming as a form of entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I I think it takes a ton of innovation to be a farmer because farming moves so much because it's constantly changing. Tech is coming in. I think farmers are really good about adopting the things that really work for them. My cousin is an early adopter of many things, and it's been really cool to watch him. I think farmers might get cast as people who are very set in their ways. I don't think that's true in most cases. I think we're always looking for the next thing. What What's going to make us better? What's going to make us produce more using fewer Herbicides, uh, using less fertilizer, um, losing less topsoil. It is to our best interest to take care of the land. And in terms of us growing our businesses, it's just like any other commodity, right? And that is our that's our commodity. That's our infrastructure. It's all about building that. It's all about finding a team that can support you in that. It's all about keeping them having low turnover. It's it's
0: There is nothing about farming that a business itself doesn't have. Hallie's journey is packed full of insights, whether you're a farmer, thinking about new ways to look at investments or strategic planning, or an ag tech entrepreneur, thinking about how to reach farmers like Hallie. In terms of thinking about on-farm sustainability, Hallie has worked to shift her understanding of investing in conservation practices, from being a nice-to-have towards being commercially sound both in terms of return on investment and in terms of adding an extra level of financial and environmental risk mitigation. I love Halley's adeptness with a spreadsheet, but no matter where it lives, good, hard, honest data is clearly the most important input into any of these projects. For those in the ag tech space, Halley's experience as a customer indicates that promises of yield increases or input efficiencies are great, but promises don't always mean results. She carefully tracks her investments and expects speedy returns, especially in high-risk environments like we have today. As an investor, Hallie wants to see deep experience in ag amongst company leadership and a demonstrated understanding of why the industry operates the way it does, in addition to a company having worked with farmers during the development of their technology. I think one of the other key questions I was left with at the end of this conversation was how common are farmers like Hallie? The specifics of her operation, from the products they sell to the size and skill sets of the team, are certainly uncommon in my experience. So how do we understand this example in context of the broader farmer landscape? My hypothesis is that, though Hallie is certainly not the norm, she represents a trend amongst younger, digitally native, and more issue-conscious operators. These leaders think of themselves as farmers, yes, but also as CEOs and entrepreneurs. And importantly, they act that way. Hallie, I think it's safe to say, is not your grandfather's farmer, and I don't think she's alone. For now, that's it for another episode of AgTech So What. Thanks to our guest, Hallie Schaffner of SFR Seed. And of course, thank you for listening. For more information on any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit our website at agtechsowhat.com. I'm Sarah Nolette, catch you next time.